Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Alex Pearson on point. Today on the podcast, we speak to the Minister of Education about these new plans to get the kids back to school in September. Question is, are they going to actually go back? We'll speak to Democracy Watch about the latest scandal with we. Not only were they lobbying, they were aggressively lobbying. Is this a political uh, problem or a legal problem? We'll talk to Duff Conacher about that. And to end the show, we speak to Adam Oldfield about why Fortnite got booted from Apple as well as Google and the battle that looms. That all coming up. We are investing more. We are consistently adding health and safety measures to our layers of prevention. And day in and day out, we are listening to the best medical minds in this province. We're taking monumental steps to protect your children and the classroom that they learn and grow. They absolutely deserve nothing less. Indeed. So why then now are we worried that schools won't open in weeks? I mean, the rest of the world reinvented itself in days. What have our educators been doing for five months? Alex Pearson with you on this August 14th, the Friday as we take you into the weekend. And, uh, I think we've got to prepare ourselves that uh, kids' education could be disrupted. Certainly, it's being politicized, turned on its head. And here we are, just 25 days before they're supposed to go back. So buckle up, because I think things could get ugly. And I think it's totally predictable. Sit back in the spring. I bet, you know, no matter what happens come the fall, there'll be a problem. I just kind of wish once in a while it would be nice if it didn't have to be, because it doesn't have to be. This pandemic has been stressful enough. You know, we got millions out of work. We've got bankruptcies on the rise. We are in a severe recession, and it's going to be a painful one. So I asked myself, like, why is it that only the education sector can't seem to get its crap together? Why can't they work together with everyone else? And in this case, I'll talk about Toronto, because it's the biggest board. And, yet, and yes, I have complaints to level at the province, too. And I will. But I look at this as as politics. Politics is being played here, and it's being played on all sides. And that is just a fact. Sure, the unions are putting up a fight. They always do. They have an agenda. They revealed it Thursday when they tweeted out a threat to the province 15 minutes before Education Minister Lecce even said anything. They already disagreed with him, and he hadn't said anything. So no matter... You know, what the situation is, their job is to create as much chaos so they can get what they want. And they seem to have a partner in the Toronto District School Board as it announces that, uh, well, we might have to delay the start of the year because, well, apparently five months isn't enough time for them to come up with uh, several plans to meet any situation that could arise. I mean, somehow every business on this planet came up with a plan A, plan B, plan C, plan D. It just not the education board. And I wonder, like, what were you doing all this time? Bacon bread, doing the marathon Netflix? I mean, I can come up with several options on the spot. You know, we could, you know, as soon as school starts, put some of the classes outside during the nice weather, put them in gyms where sports aren't happening, 
put kids in auditoriums where assemblies aren't being held. There's all way, all sorts of ways that you can think outside the box. And the survey that the Toronto Districts Board um, has been doing this week, well, it's starting to come back. And guess what? So far, parents don't, they want their kids to come back overwhelmingly. So maybe they're not as scared as we keep telling everybody they are. You know, but yet here we are. You know, here we are. I mean, there's no question it's a challenge, but to suggest that, you know, the big minds that we pay these huge salaries to couldn't sit at a table and prepare for all sorts of situations, kind of like they would in a war, I think it's just nonsense. I think it's really irresponsible. And yet we're looking at the delay. And the board is now further arguing that the reserve fund of $131 million that's set aside for future emergencies, apparently that doesn't include pandemics. I mean, they had no issue dipping into, into you know, the money last year to buy $5 million worth of, of top-end iPhones, a contract that quickly got canceled once it got uh, caught. But look, the province has given them a one-time permission to use it. And they'll argue, well, it's not really meant for hiring teachers or renting space or whatever to keep kids safe. Well, <laughs> that's BS. We have a rainy day. It's actually a hurricane. We have a crisis now. And the province, albeit late, has given them a solution. And all we get is a moving of the goalposts. Let's quit making excuses. Let's solve the crisis, which is causing all sorts of amounts of stress on parents and teachers by spending, you know, what's available now to get kids back to some kind of normal. And their first response is an excuse just tells me that they're not interested in solutions. And I had Harvey Bischoff on the show last night. You know, I, I said, like, no matter how imperfect everything is, can we not find a solution? And he had excuses on the fly, but worse, I asked him, will there be job action? And he didn't say that it's off the table. And I think parents at this point should be prepared for anything. And that could include, you know, teachers not showing up. Because he didn't say no. But why did this government not get ahead of this sooner? Given all the acrimony and obvious disdain that these education groups have for this government, why wouldn't they get ahead of this? I mean, the unions say they were begging for meetings back in March. And if that's true, then why wouldn't Minister Lecce play that game and meet with them? I mean, the government knew that they'd get pushback no matter what the plan is. They knew that the unions would resist. And yet here we are three weeks from what should be the start of kids getting back to what they miss and what we know that they desperately need. And what it seems is that we're kind of in this never-ending circle of political BS, which is paid at their expense. And it really shouldn't have to happen, especially given we're told we're all, we're all in this together. Well, no, we're not. We're not in this together. We were in this together when everyone else was taking risks in early March when there was not enough PPE. We had hundreds of cases. That's when we were in it together. Now we're flatlined the, uh, the, the cases. We've got PPE. We've got a lot more information about this. And now all of a sudden it's chaos. Everyone's going to get sick. So I'm not happy with anybody right now because I think that this could have all been avoided. And Stephen Lutch is going to join me at seven o'clock. So I will ask him. And then I've got the TDSB coming on at eight o'clock to ask them, like, what the hell have you been doing for five months? 
Because I just keep looking at every other industry and saying, if every other industry could figure this out, I'll just take my own, for instance. Broadcasters across this country, in a matter of hours, had to completely pivot and build TV and radio studios without missing a, 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 a second of, of on-air time. And guess what? We did it. it. wasn't perfect, but we did it. Didn't skip a beat. So every, every other industry's done it. I just wonder, like, five months in, like, why, why are we still, you know, battling back and forth with parents just trying to get some stability for their kids in the life? It is fair, but I think the question a lot of parents are asking now is, are the kids even going to go back? And the Toronto District School Board is starting to get uh, the survey results in. And so far, a lot of parents plan to send the kids back, which tells me that, you know, maybe parents aren't as scared as the unions and parent groups would like us to believe. I mean, <laughs> maybe. But we're just three weeks until the start of the year. We're dealing with a ton of unknowns and we got to be flexible. But I, my question always comes down to, you know, we've had months of disruptions for kids and parents. Why now, three, are we in chaos and not really quite clear as to if the kids are going back when we've had months to figure this out. Stephen Lecce is the education minister. This is uh, the question everyone is uh, asking, minister, so I appreciate you joining us. And I think there's just frustration. You know, why now are we having all these issues? Yeah, you know, Alex, I think, you know, as every major economy and democracy tries to get their kids back into schools, there's, there's challenges. I mean, we've got 2 million kids in Ontario it's going to come with some challenge and a sense of, you know, unity of purpose. We've got to work together to overcome the adversity. And I think it's not unique to Ontario, notwithstanding that we have the strongest plan by any measurement in Canada in investment in cleaning and screening and testing. The fact is we're putting a lot of young people, you know, millions of people back into class. And the obligation on the government is to make sure that we have a protocol and a program that is not just informed by medicine and science, but acts upon their advice. And in every measurement, Alex, I'm really proud that we have adopted it. We've implemented it with more investment. We now spend more uh, on a per-pupil basis than any province. We have a testing element that no province has for asymptomatic students. And we've got nurses in our schools to help with public health. I recognize there's that frustration, and I know there's an anxiety. We all have it, Alex. I mean, parents or non-parents, we all have that angst. The commitment over the coming weeks is to really work hard and to work together to get these kids back in a safe manner, because as you know, you noted, there is an imperative to return health, mental health, development. These kids need to be in positive spaces. And I think it's important we just focus the next few weeks on operationalizing these plans and allowing parents, um, giving parents rather that confidence I think they deserve. Okay. And so you say, let's work together. The unions, you know, they tell me, I talked to Harvey Bischoff last night that they've been begging you to meet since March. Is this true? Yes or no? Uh, no. Uh, the, the fact is we have met with the federations over 120 times since March, since I closed schools, reached out to the presidents personally. But Alex, with respect, I mean, no matter what we do in the changing yard, you know, the changing goalposts, there's always going to be opposition from unions. In fact, they're opposing virtually every government of liberal, new democratic and progressive conservative persuasion in Canada. All the provincial governments were facing a lot of similar challenges. And I get it. We, you know, especially in Ontario, maybe it's a bit more acute, Alex, because, you know, they're trying to relitigate those issues that we uh, got agreements on over the past, the relitigate issues that have been closed now for some months. It's just not the time for that. And what I'd say to them is what I'd say really to anyone in the education world is that now is the time to put those historic 
differences aside, and focus on the safety of your members, of our kids, because when it comes to public health, it isn't about a party. I mean, my, for, you know, for, for goodness sake, the premier of this province has forged an unusually solid and, and robust relationship with, with Chrystia Freeland, the deputy prime minister liberal of this country. I mean, I'm working closely with Ahmed Hussein, the federal minister responsible for child care, and the Democrat and liberal ministers across Canada and PCs. The fact is, we are collaborating. And I need the teacher unions to just really to embrace the need for reform, be reasonable and flexible in a recession and in a pandemic, and just do whatever it takes to keep these kids safe and learning. Okay, but your government had to have known that no matter what you did, there'd be pushback. The unions do not like conservatives. They do not like Doug Ford. And so knowing that, given how tough the negotiation was to get a deal uh, during the the, the education negotiations, you know, why not be more proactive and do what you did yesterday with the funding sooner? Well, you know, we actually did announce more funding immediately after. I announced $700 million in net new funding about six weeks ago, seven weeks ago, uh, to the grant for student needs. I then announced another $309 million, as you know. We talked about that a little while ago. Uh, but that was about, I guess, uh, two weeks ago, $309 million more. And then based on the feedback, based on the overwhelming evidence, which is, look, we've got to improve uh, air quality and do more. We're already spending about $1.4 in Ontario in maintenance to update these schools and HVAC systems. I said, okay. I spoke to Dr. Williams. We spoke to the medical community. I sought counsel from sick kids, and we thought, okay, we can do more. We can, have this, we can create an immediate fund for shovel-ready projects, get them in the ground, improve air, improve air filtration systems by adding $50 million for airflow and air quality. So what I'd say to you, Alex, is it, it's a virtue that we're going to keep building it up. I mean, look, if we adopt, if we built out a plan two months ago, it would have changed by, by compulsion because the public health data, the risk has changed. We flattened the curve. There's a lot of variables changing in a positive way, to be quite frank. What I could say to parents is we've got to be adaptive. We've got to be willing to see this plan uh, change. It's going to be a living document and expect to see more investment. And that is, a, I think, a strength. I mean, we're just going to keep putting the resources and the people, the nurses, whatever it takes to ensure your child in this province is safe. And no matter where they are, urban and rural, English and French, the obligation, the investment and the endorsement of the chief medical officer, I think, speaks volumes. I mean, Dr. Williams yesterday was asked by one of your colleagues in the media about this plan, about it being safe, given they suggest the union saying one thing. What do you say? Well, he said, I wouldn't have signed off on the plan if it wasn't absolutely comprehensive and safe. He goes, you know, after all, I'm the one that called the Minister of Education, me, in March to close schools, and we did so within about 75 minutes. I mean, our obligation is safety. That's what we want. It's what we're investing in. It's why we have training, mandatory training for teachers. It's why we have testing in our schools, why we have public health nurses, cohorting, as well as more cleaning, 1,300 more custodians, $75 million all in in that respect. So I guess what I'm saying to you is we're going to keep doing more. Okay, and I get the sense that there's got to be flexibility. And the board has already pushed back on the reserve spending, at least in the Toronto board. They're saying, look, that's a rainy day fund meant for future spending, to which I say, well, well, there is a monsoon. It's a monsoon. It's got to be spent now. Um, But you're still getting pushback on that. Um, And the bottom line is, you know, had they known that money would have been available sooner, they, they believe they'd be way ahead. Yeah, you know, what I'd say is school boards only this past, uh, most recently, have come out asking the ministry to expand the amount of the contingency rainy day fund that they're able to use. Right now, they're allowed to use about 1% of their overall uh, budget for operating expenses. So we said, okay, well, based on your feedback, we're listening, we're acting, this is, we're all learning in this experience. We added another, we, we went to 2%, which unlocks about half a billion dollars. 
And there may be more ideas that come online next week, in a month, in three months. And I want you to know we're going to be responsive, we're going to listen, and we're going to act. And it's going to be informed by science. But, you know, many school boards already planned and were using part of their reserves. We just unlocked a higher rate of the reserves to use because, as you noted, yes, it's a rainy day. If this doesn't meet the criteria, the generational health and economic challenge of my lifetime, of our lifetime, then I'm not sure what does meet the criterion of, of a rainy day. But we've got the funds. We've got cash on hand, tax dollars sitting right there. I want to put it to use. The ministry stepped up our investment. Boards will step up theirs. And, of course, we just need all the parties, including our unions, to be very reasonable and flexible. You know, even on, okay. uh, on certain things that just make sense, like live learning, synchronous learning, we just can't have opposition. We need them to support it to ensure quality for the kids. I don't have a lot of time left, and I've got two more questions that I want to ask you. I spoke with Harvey Bischoff last night, and I asked him if there was going to be any job action. Like, are the teachers going to refuse to show up uh, at the start of school? Uh, he didn't exactly say there'd be job action, but he did say that there would. they've got options. They've got legal options available to them, which is another way of, of saying not saying uh, anything. So do you expect that we are going to see some kind of job action that disrupts this again? Uh, well, what I would simply say is, you know, uh, I expect educators, uh, you know, those, of course, that can, uh, which will be the overwhelming number to show up to work, to do their part, uh, to make a difference for their children, like every member of the of society is doing in the context of, you know, uh, just a few days ago, meeting Walmart workers uh, at a kind of new uh, Walmart opening up in my community in Vaughan. You know, you sort of think these folks are meeting hundreds of people a day, people in tourism on the shop floors, people in um uh, you know, in the service industry, and they don't have the benefit of a cohort. They don't have nurses on site and testing and, and free PPE. So my point to you, I guess, is we are ensuring it's safe for our educators. The chief medical officer, the most senior medical authority, uh, has said it is safe. And I believe and I expect uh, educators to show up. They will. I know many of them want to in their heart. They want to be part of the solution. And they're going to work. And I mean, obviously, they're, they're, I mean, if there was a strike, it'd be illegal. I just don't mm -hmm. think that that's going to happen. Uh, I honestly think for all the rhetoric in the news, we're just going to get to down to business. And we have to. We just have to move beyond the finger pointing and focus on a solution that allows for greater safety and the learning of our children. And our plan endorsed by the chief medical officer, I think. The, that's the gentleman, for, for the record, for folks out there, that has advised Doug Ford and our government every step of the way since March. There's a reason that we are where we're at, and the fact that community spread is down to eight consecutive days under 100. That's not a coincidence. Yes, because of policies of government listening to the public health. Yes, because Dr. Williams has demonstrated leadership. And yes, because folks out there, the people of this province, have done an amazing job doing their part, helping to find the curve. But we keep the transmission rate low, these kids will go to school. And so far, on the trajectory we are on, we can say they can. They absolutely can. Let me ask you this, because I'm, I'm, I'm up against the clock. I'm up against the clock. But okay. this is important. It's something I've talked about a lot. I mean, given every other industry in this pandemic has had to pivot and fix what's broken. You know, if right. we if we have a, a system mired in, in chaos, you know, is it not then time to give parents a choice? Will this government ever look at things like a tax credit, charter schools to give parents an option if they you know, can't get the education they want in the public system? I mean, is it not time at least uh, maybe to look at something like that? Yeah, look, I mean, it isn't something on my on my immediate priority list. I mean, I must admit to you, my ministry, my job is to ensure that kids in the publicly educated system have a solid, defensible education. And I will stand up for their parents and for taxpayers to make sure that the interests of students triumph over any other special interest in the system. And I care deeply about them. But right now, like honestly, 
that's not where my focus is. It's on ensuring the kids are safe, that the system is, is, is consistent with accountability, that the online learning system is beefed up, and that the in-class experience is safe. That's the priority for now. It remains the priority, I think, for the coming year, given the challenge ahead. And I just think parents want me to focus on the safety of kids in the coming months. We could always have discussions uh, in the future about ways to support parents financially. We are providing more support, direct support, financial support for parents, as you know, uh, cash, uh, mm-hmm. really a check to parents, as you know, through the Support for Families Fund that we created to help offset the challenges of COVID. There's always ways we could provide direct financial relief. We're doing it. We have done it so far. We've done it multiple times during the strikes uh, to put money in the pockets of working parents. But that not through the lens you're suggesting. We think there's other ways to, to support affordability through childcare, through tax relief, and obviously through tax, um, tax credits to support families with children. Thank you very much for your time. I uh, assume that we will be talking again because it's going to be just that kind of three weeks till we get to school. Mr. Lecce, I appreciate your uh, time on this Friday night. Thank you. Have a great weekend. There you go. An answer to a question I've been wondering for a very long time. Parental choice. Maybe that is coming and that would not be bad news. Let me tell you. Here we go yet again. Just when we thought the uh, we scandal had kind of uh, maybe come to a slow drip stop. Now, we learned that, indeed, it lobbied the government more than General Motors, even though we was not let registered as a lobbyist. In fact, during testimony on Thursday, we learned that they met with MPs 43 times since March versus GM, which had 11 meetings. I mean, the good news, the executive director testified, well, now we've retroactively registered to lobby the government. I mean, all that's fine and dandy. But what they're saying is, well, we've put the toothpaste back in the tube by miracle. Except that's not really how it should work. I mean, the Lobbying Act requires a lobbyist register within two months of lobbying. So is this just a matter of a a nice, convenient loophole? Because it looks shady to me. Let's bring in Duff Conacher of Democracy Watch to this conversation. And I mean, from the outside looking in, Duff, this may all be very uh, on the up and up, but it looks very bad. Uh, It does look very bad. And I don't see how it can be on the up and up, actually, because the registration that they've made uh, dates back to January 2019. And essentially what they're saying is we should have been registered as of January 2019. That's a year and a half that's gone by when they've been violating the law. So they've essentially admitted that they violated the law uh, for the last 18 months. How serious? I mean, this doesn't register with everyday people who are just trying to get the kids back to school, just trying to deal with like what's life life is throwing at them. So a lot of people don't care about the lobbying world. It's a very inside baseball kind of area. But, you know, the importance of it is what? And in this situation is what? Well, in every situation, the importance is that uh, the public has a right to know how decisions are being made because that's key to not only tracking it and ensuring decisions are being made uh, the right way, uh, but also um, that decisions are in the public interest. And when I say the right way, that they're being done uh, without uh, undue influence from any lobbyist, or that they're being done in a way that uh, doesn't further the interests of a politician or a government official's family or relatives or friends or associates, or give preferential treatment to, to one uh, organization or individual that they favor for some reason. And the only way to track that is to have transparency. Right. And there are huge loopholes in the law 
that allow for secret lobbying. And if you're allowed to lobby in secret and not register your and disclose your lobbying, you're also allowed to lobby unethically because there's a lobbyist ethics code that applies, but it only applies to lobbyists who are registered. So these loopholes allow for secret unethical lobbying and they're huge uh, and they should be closed because right now the public's right to know is being denied. Right, because no one in the general public, I couldn't just go and lobby, but what it does is allow friends in high places to uh, you know, pat each other on the back and you do a favor for me, I'll do a favor for you. Politically, um, this becomes very problematic for the Liberals because during testimony, Bartish Chagger, the minister of this file, uh, testified that she hadn't spoken to we. And that was a you know as of April seventeenth. So she didn't she didn't talk to them, and they didn't have calls. And then you read the lobbying records, and it also shows that Rachel Wernick. I mean, she's part of the the public service. I mean, she also didn't mention that she had had twenty one conversations with we between April twenty fourth and July fifth. And you know that is straight up and up lobbying. And again, this is a government trying to tell us that no, 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 there were no conversations with we. This just kind of happened generically. And now we're starting to see that there were very many conversations. They were aggressively lobbying this government. They were, and it is on in, in the testimony that uh, they sent an initial proposal to several ministers for a, a youth social entrepreneurship program. Mm -hmm. And what's also come out and been confirmed is that uh, they talked to Rachel Wernock on April 19th and then also the finance minister's office, we don't know exactly whom in his office, talked to them on April 20th. And uh, then there was a contact from the, the prime minister's office as well uh, soon after that. And uh, they were all essentially saying, change your proposal. And the important ones are April 19th and April 22nd or sorry, April 20th, uh, with Rachel uh, Wernick, mm -hmm. the Senior Assistant Deputy Minister at the uh, department that handed out this grant, and then uh, with the Finance Minister's Office on April 20th, because that was before this program for youth volunteer service was announced. And essentially the reports from that and the testimony is that they were told, just change your program and you'll match this new program coming up. Sorry, change your proposal, you'll match this new program that Prime Minister is about to announce. And uh, then you'll have the fast inside track. And that's the problem, is that uh, the evidence shows they were given the fast inside track, which is preferential treatment. Mm -hmm. And it's illegal under both the public servants rules and also the politicians ethics rules. So where does it go from here other than, you know, the finance committee can ask uh, these people all to come back and testify again? I mean, does it go to a complaint system? The, you know, the penalty for this, because as you say, we has pretty much um, already admitted fault, you know, their guilt. But again, is it slap on the wrist? Is there any actual, um, you know, punishment for this? Well, we'll see what happens. Um, the opposition parties complained to the commissioner of lobbying when we's lobbying first came to light that maybe they should have been registered and nobody knew the extent of the lobbying at the time and the Kielberger brothers the uh the two co-founders of we charity said that uh, we didn't think that we had crossed this this threshold which is one of the loopholes that if you're collectively your staff is not lobbying 20 percent of the time if you counted it as one person's time uh, then you don't have to register uh, and that has to be over any month period. Uh, now they've registered, admitted that they essentially were breaking the law by not registering before. Because again, they've they're registered 
right back to communications right back to January of 2019. So they're way late in registering and they should be prosecuted. The commissioner would now have to, for a prosecution, refer it to the RCMP and the public prosecution service to consider prosecuting. I think they should be prosecuted. And uh, the penalty on a summary conviction is a fine of up to $50,000 or a jail term of up to six months. And if you proceed by way of indictment, it's a fine of up to $200,000 and a jail term of up to two years or both. Yeah, the, both the, the likeliness, though, of that is, is not likely. I mean, um, well, we'll, see. Go, well, you know, I mean, we, we have a test case. I mean, if you look, yes, historically, the RCMP is only and crime prosecutors have only prosecuted five people since 1988 for failing to register as lobbyists, even though these penalties have been in place right back to then. Um, the lobbying commissioner, who's the frontline uh, enforcement officer and essentially decides whether to refer something to the RCMP and to prosecutors, the uh, commissioner has let off 85% of people that the commissioner, the initial commissioner and the new commissioner have actually caught violating the law. So uh, almost nine out of 10 have been let off the hook with things like the penalty has been write an essay about why what you did was wrong. And uh, they haven't even been found guilty of violating the lobbyist code, which requires you to register. Mm -hmm. The penalty for violating the lobbyist code is just a report saying that you violated the code. And if that report's not issued, then your identity's hidden. So uh, we know that there are 100 lobbyists out there who have violated the law uh, in the past, uh, since uh, 2007. We don't know any of their names because the commissioner covered up for them by letting them off the hook. So, yes, it's unlikely there'll be a prosecution, but the spotlight is on these kind of situations. And we have another test case right now where Facebook, with Kevin Chan, its top lobbyist, also being very connected to the Liberals, uh, was uh, also questioned about whether he should have been registered. And we don't know where that investigation's at. Democracy Watch filed a complaint in April of 2018, and we're still waiting for rulings on that. But that's kind of a test case as, as to whether you can find someone who's connected to the Liberals at the top level. Uh, be, whether they can actually be prosecuted and held accountable for failing to follow to follow the law. Well, the slow wheels of justice. What can I say? It continues. No, on. indeed, very yeah. slow. Yeah. Well, we'll uh, keep our eye on this, but no question, it's opened up another few uh, cracks in this whole thing that um, is turning into kind of the Grand Canyon of just violations. Duff, I appreciate your time on this Friday. Thank you very much, and we'll let you know uh, about our uh, what we hear about our complaints to the RCMP and the Ethics Commissioner about this whole We Charity scandal situation. Good stuff. There's so many, it's hard to keep count at this point. Indeed. Duff Conacher joining us from Democracy Watch, and uh, we will keep our eye on that story. A lot of you are probably doing this right now, playing Fortnite. I think my nephews probably are. But this one, this may be one of the most epic fights video gaming has seen. Fortnite maker Epic Games is now taking legal action against Google after it banned the game from the Google Play App Store. And that was hours after Apple did the same. Both platforms take 30% of the purchase in the App Store. And so they're accusing Epic Games of bypassing the payment system to avoid giving them a cut. So what they did was apparently offer users a 20% discount, but only if they pay you know, directly to Epic Games. So they went around Google and Apple. Some say smart business. Others would say cheating. Adam Oldfield joining us now, our global news uh, tech expert. And uh, how do you see this? 
Uh, I think it's a precedent set for all the indie game makers to push back against the two Goliaths that are out there. And I think, if anything, it's going to assist a lot of new app developers to accomplish the goal of trying to succeed in this very saturated world. So Epic Games has a mission, and I think their mission is to push back. I mean, they're a $17 billion operative uh, company, so they're not hurting by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, the only challenge that's facing them is the fact that, you know, they're suing these two companies as a stance against other game developers uh, to, to showcase that Apple and Google uh, do have a, a monopoly. And I think you and I talked about that before with the government antitrust saying, is Apple and Google, are they a monopoly? Are they controlling a system of which is, is not allowing uh, developers or, or freelance startups to be able to succeed? Well, Epic Games is going to prove that when they go to court and fight them. Okay. I mean, 30% is a pretty steep cost. I mean, there's a lot of these downloads. Do you think the price is uh, too too steep? Well, I, I think we're talking price in the case of value versus activity of, of success. So 30%, yeah, it's very steep. And when you take a dollar and you're only making 70 cents, out of that 70 cents, 30% of your cost, out of any business for that matter, it, it's a lot. And we know that in the food industry, anything, retail, any kind of business, if someone said to you, we're going to take a 30% chunk of your operating profit, then it's going to hurt. So, you know, gaming and developing coders or a program of any sort, it's not a cheap endeavor. Uh, so to be able to create a quality game that is appealing to millions, advertising, uh, so that you got advertising budget, development budget, bu uh, debugging uh, uh, HR, uh, regulations, all the costs, by the time it's said and done, and again, this isn't about what Epic Games makes. This is about uh, setting the principle, as obviously Epic Games made the claim, that they're not looking for a monetary win. They're looking to make a point that this is a system that needs to change. So, yeah, 30%, if you took that down to even 12%, Google and Apple uh, aren't going to be hurting in their financial books by any stretch. Uh, we know that Apple's about to become a $2 trillion company. And I can tell you that if they were able to shave a few percentages, then that would be able to allow development developers to put more research and development and possibly quality games for those that want to play it. Okay, so look, this is not a world I am in, so I don't understand it. And uh, the whole app world uh, is, uh, you know, my son knows more about it than I do. But uh, can the video game companies not go direct to consumer uh, or do they need these other platforms? They can go direct to consumers primarily in Google's platform. Google does, or an Android platform does allow you to be able to do that. Now, the only challenge with that is the fact that when you're using Google, it also does open up a bit of a platform of uh, malware or viruses. Now, in Apple's ecosystem, unfortunately, that is not possible. You have to go through the App Store. To, you have to uh, jailbreak your iPhone or your iPad if you're going to download any kind of game. So it's not an easy task in an Apple system. System as, as it is in a Google platform. So uh, by circumventing that, and that's what Epic Games was doing, was saying, hey, listen, download our game. If it's an Android, you'll be able to access it, and it won't cost as much. Apple's standing its ground and saying you're violating, breaching the contract, and that is a violation of their terms and conditions. Therefore, that was why they pulled them. All right, so how do you expect that this is going to, to play out? Because you can still get the game, correct? 
Absolutely, yeah. The game in Google or an Android environment is downloadable. However, right now on an Apple platform, if you and I try to download it with our Apples, it is not available. It's not successfully capable of being downloaded. Uh, you're going to have to jailbreak your phone and possibly find uh, find it somewhere on the on the dark web. Not not something I highly recommend anybody doing. It isn't worth it. Uh, what is the what is the outcome to your question is that I believe this is going to really rattle Apple and Google's cages in two fronts. One, they're getting pushback from the gaming development side. Number two, it gives a case for uh, the Congress to be able to fight back against uh, Apple and Google in this example where they say, you guys have a monopoly. You're having too much control. You need to be able to lessen your control on this. And you need to be, we need you as two companies, Facebook included in this case mm-hmm. of antitrust to start to open up and not be so Goliath in regards to your rules. So I think we're going to see a big change. Hopefully they'll adjust their percentage, uh, lowering it and giving that opportunity for startup businesses to have a chance to succeed. Stay tuned. All right. As long as the uh, teens and the youngins can get their uh, Fortnite and obsess over it, (laughs) that's all that matters. Adam, I got to go on that note. Thank you very much. Thanks, Alex. Have a great weekend. That is your podcast for today. You can hear us, of course, on Point Live Monday through Friday, 6.30 to 10. Have a great weekend. I'm Alex Pearson.